chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians is where we are today. But at first, uh, I mean, I have been wrestling a little bit last week as we got started. I've been wrestling, how do I do this? How do I keep it under control so we don't get into everybody wanting to study Daniel, the Olivet Discourse, and the Book of Revelation together and, you know, just talking about this chapter, because we, we can't do that. At least I don't think we can realistically do that. So what I thought I would do is um, make a couple of comments, first of all using this handout, and then I want to go to the to the text, uh, Second Thess 2, and then we'll look at the other handout. And I don't know how far we'll get with that second handout, but this one we will. So... Um, let me, let me begin with uh, a number of kind of introductory comments. Now, some of you I know are new in the faith. Some of you are, are, are new in terms of really in-depth Bible study. Um, some of you, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure this would apply to very many of you, but some of you, you might even have difficulty finding certain books of the Bible. If I say, turn to Habakkuk, you're going to say, now where in the world is that? So... I mean, I understand all of that, but as you know, those of you who have been in this class for a, a, a while, and when we started it, I made that clear, and I've tried to re- review that every now and then. My view of Bible study is, is in-depth Bible study. I do not say, it's okay, let's read a little passage. Now, what does this passage mean to you? And we just talk about very superficial things. My own view is that's not the way to study the Bible, but regardless of that, I, that's just the way I teach it, and if, if you are blessed by that, I want you to keep coming. If this is not what you want, don't come. You will not offend me. But I believe in-depth Bible study is the way in which we really get to understand God's Word, and we get to understand Him. We get to understand what He's doing in this world. And it's the only way to really do it. So I dig in as deep as I think you guys can handle it. And this is what I've been struggling with. How deep do I go? But let me make several introductory comments. of the Bible is prophecy. That's a very significant chunk of the Bible. So, you know, that's approaching a third of the scriptures. And so you you can't ignore it. You can't say, well, because it's hard and controversial, I'm just going to stay away from it. Well, then you're missing almost a third of God's word. So that doesn't seem to be an option for us. So my perspective is that the way to study biblical prophecy is keep in mind the way God has revealed his word. Old Testament first, New Testament second. You with me so far? And as you go through the Old Testament first, it starts with creation and then works through the singling out of Abraham as the father of the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation, and then it just is the history. Because once Abraham is on the scene in Genesis 12, through the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, it's about the Jewish people. And it's about his covenant relationship with them. And the most important thing about that covenant relationship is there is coming a Messiah who will redeem his people from their sin. He will be a Davidic king. He will be in the line of the king of David. And that is, they're they're the central things that are a part of the Old Testament as well as many, many, many other things. In the New Testament, the main theme of the New Testament, again, remember, God is continuing to reveal himself and what he's doing, focuses on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central figure. The very first verse of the New Testament is, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And it gives us a genealogy, why he has the right to claim the throne of David, the king. And his salvation that he offers through his death, burial, and resurrection, and so on. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it clearly stated, now it's a little more difficult in the Old, but it's there, that this Messiah would come first to save his people from their sin and come again to rule and reign over planet Earth. That becomes very clear in the New Testament because the first advent is what the New Testament is all about, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father and the coming of the Spirit. 
And then as you leave the old, excuse me, as you leave the New Testament, the next thing we're looking for is the return of Jesus. In the Old Testament, they had both advents to look forward to. Okay, you with me so far? I'm just trying to, that is how the Bible presents the material. So prophecy then, the best place to start with prophecy is to start, now I'm not going to fill any of this in. I'm just going to give you the framework. It's to start with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is, is the framework, the foundation, gives us the structure of prophecy. And what the book of Daniel tells us, and it's in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 12, what the book of Daniel says is there's going to be four great world kingdoms. And that fourth one is going to have two phases. And when those world kingdoms are completed, the kingdom of God will be set up on earth. Of course, that's all wrapped around Christ. Now, in addition to that, the book of Daniel helps us to understand in chapter 9 the role that the Jewish people play in all this. Because when Daniel is writing his book, he's in Babylon. He is about the second or third most powerful man in Babylon, which is what the early chapters of Daniel are all about. It just tells how did this Jewish man who had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon become one of the most powerful men in the ancient world. And that's the story the early chapters is about. And then in chapter 9, Daniel says, well, Lord, what about my people? How do my people fit into this? And what Daniel does, in addition to giving us this understanding of these four great world empires, with the fourth having two phases, with the kingdom of God and, and ending history, the Jewish people, he tells them that, Daniel, a number of years have been planned for your people. And between that section when you go back after the captivity until the Messiah comes then there's going to be another week or another seven years and that seven years is going to be the last seven years of history what's called the seventh week of Daniel and that's all about the Jewish people okay now have I lost you so you two things point of Daniel a framework for understanding history four great world empires with the fourth one having two phases and then the kingdom of God ends human history. The second thing Daniel does is helps us understand how the Jewish people fit into all this. So then, on top, when Daniel, when you're done with studying Daniel, then the major and minor prophets add to our understanding of what Daniel, the foundation stone, uh, just adds more to it. A little more detail, a little more information, a little more perspective. Then you have the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. And by the way, there are four major prophets and there are 12 minor prophets. So you can see, right, that you've got a significant number of books of the Old Testament. The Olivet Discourse, the fullest account for us is in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And then you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which is what we are studying. And then finally, you have the book of Revelation. My very strong conviction is, you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you don't understand all this. Because all of this is assumed when you get to the book of Revelation. I, don't, I hope you're following me. The... the <coughs> When John is writing the book of Revelation, this is John the Apostle, when he's writing the book of Revelation, he uses words, he uses terms, he uses ideas, he uses concepts that have been developed through all these books. And the assumption is you know this. It doesn't keep explaining it. It just assumes you know this. And so that's why this, people, you know, I used to do a lot of Bible conferences and stuff all over the country, and they would say, oh, we want you to come and preach Revelation. And I would always be very reluctant to do that. I'd say, okay, what have you studied before I get there? Oh, we haven't studied, we've never studied prophecy in this, this church. I, I would say, no, I'm not going to do it. I will come and I'll teach Daniel. Because that's where you should start. But you, you know what I mean? Because it's impossible in, in a weekend conference to adequately teach Revelation if the people don't have this background. Now, in a church where this has been focused on, and so on, then you come, then it's going to work. So, again, I'm telling you more than you need to know. But here's 
here's the point that I'm finally getting to. When you're here in Jesus, all of a discourse, or you're here with Paul, both of these assume the structure of Daniel. Assume you know that. And what that structure is, is reflected in this handout here. This is, you can see, now this is what Daniel teaches us in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. That the last seven years of history is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end is going to be the second coming of Christ. Now, who in this last seven years, this is sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel. Again, I don't want to get into too much more detail. I'm going to get way in the weeds and I'm going to lose all of you. But when Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he's writing that chapter in this letter, someone had been teaching in that church that this had already begun. That this last week, this last seven-year period, had already begun. In other words, somebody was saying the last seven years of human history had begun. It's called the day of the Lord. And Paul says, oh my how in the world did you get to that point? And as we read a little bit last week, and when we first started the book of First Thess- of Second Thessalonians, Paul says, now, I taught you this. When I was with you, I taught you this. And this is what he taught them. That before Jesus comes back, there is going to be a seven-year period of time. In the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, he calls this period the Tribulation. That's where we get that word. He calls it that. And he says, in the middle of that last seven-year period, the abomination of desolation, that's the phrase he uses, quoting from Daniel chapter 9, is going to set up worship of himself on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And when you see that, you are at the middle marker of this last period of time. And this is what Paul appeals to. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, He assumes that the Thessalonian believers know this structure and know about this evil one who's going to set up worship of himself in the middle of this last seven-year period of time. What is he called in parts of the scriptures? What is this individual who sets this abomination of desolation? That's Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 calls him that. He is also called the Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18. What else is he called? The beast. The beast. In Revelation chapter 13, he's called the beast. Is the reference to the great deceiver? Well, he's a great deceiver. He's got lots and lots of names. He's the little horn in Daniel chapter 2 and 7. I mean, he's just got lots of names throughout the scripture. It's the same person. It's the same person. He has lots of names. It's the same person keeps coming up again in the prophetic passages of scripture. Now, um, let me stop. (laughs) I actually did a little more than I wanted to do. Um, Did I lose you? Are you all out in the weeds somewhere, or are you sort of with me? Okay. Some of you are shaking your head, yes. Some of you and the rest of you are playing living statues. You're not moving at all because you don't want... But, you know, it may have been so overwhelming that you can't even frame a question. But... um, God is chosen to reveal enough of this to us. There are a lot of unanswered questions. There are questions that we just, some of, we can't answer. But he's chosen to tell us an awful lot. And what Daniel does for us, and what all of the rest of those parts of God's word assume, is that you know this book. That you understand what Daniel has said. That's why Daniel is one of the, the book of Daniel is one of the most important books in the whole Bible in terms of understanding what is God doing in this world. And if, if you get that, even if you don't get all the structure, just get that. That's one of those books that, I mean, maybe we should study it sometime. You know? But it's one of those books that once you really understand, and it's not necessarily easy, but once you really understand what Daniel's saying, so much of the rest of God's word really makes a lot of sense. Because you can just you see the framework of what he's saying, what God's doing. 
What are your hand was up? Yeah, I just have the feeling from what you're saying today that I should at least read uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, you know. And uh, I don't know how much of it I'll uh, internalize, but I will. I think I should at least read it. So I'm a little bit out there. But, uh, That's all right. <laughs> but uh, we'll get there. It's yeah. It's a, it's a it's very important book of the scriptures to understand. Yes, sir. Quick question is, and if you want to answer this later, that's fine. But is there a reference book of some kind that uh, maybe compiles the prophecies that the Jews feel that Christ didn't fulfill? Does that make any sense? I mean, Repeat that again. The, the Jews the believe Jewish what? people have not accepted Christ as the, okay. the, the, that, that he's not the Messiah. Correct, right? the Messiah. Is there a resource that I, you could point me to that has the prophecies that the Jewish people don't feel that Christ fulfills? Because he obviously fulfills a lot that we've read and I've studied, but I'm curious what's, what's their hold up, if you will, or what, what holds them up from believing that he was the Messiah, his Messiah. Well, I have a handout. Uh, 367 prophecies in the Old Testament about the first advent. There are 367 identifiable prophecies in the Old Testament, all over, the, mostly the minor and major prophets, as well as Daniel, that points to the first advent of Jesus. And they reject all those. I mean, they reject them all because they all point to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean they reject them as pointing to the Messiah. What they reject is not that they're pointing to the Messiah. They reject that they're pointing to Jesus, who is the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that's the question you're asking me. But it's the, the key issue for, uh, and by the way, uh, the, you, you really cannot speak of the Jewish people in 2015 in a unified way. Because they're they're very divided. I mean, you have the secular Jew who doesn't basically an atheist, which is probably probably close to thirty five to forty percent of Jews today. Of eighteen million Jews on Earth, about forty percent would fit that. Then you have the Reformed Jew, who is a, what we would maybe call the liberal Jew, who doesn't believe in a literal coming Messiah, but believes and practices, go to synagogue and all of that, but they really don't have their children uh, go through bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, it's a girl. But they really are not looking for a personal Messiah. Then you have the conservative Jew who is looking for a, for a Messiah, but it's kind of a midway between the Orthodox Jew and the Reformed Jew. Then you have the Orthodox Jews, and there are about four different groups of those, but the Orthodox Jews are waiting for a personal Messiah. And I mean, enthusiastically so. So it's those, it's those people that are really serious. <laughs> the rest aren't serious about the Messiah. So you're down to about 11 or 12% of the Jews on earth that are in that framework. And it, it basically boils down to what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. It's like there's a veil pulled over their understanding but they refuse to acknowledge the obvious. What percentage of them today are Christian then? Because there's some... Christian yeah, there are. It's, uh, to give them a label, although not all of them accept that, but a Messianic Jew is, is sometimes the, the, the label that's used. You're probably about 3%, maybe a little more. It's growing proportionately. It's growing quite significantly, really. But it's... You know, it's not a it's still not a huge number, but it, it is. Uh, there, there is a very. I went to school. I went to graduate school with two, two Messianic Jewish guys. They're just they were they're most incredible men to be around. I I've ever been around. I mean, their their passion. I mean, because as Larry used to tell me, I'm a completed Jew. He was from New Jersey, and he just. I mean, his passion and his whole goal was to tell all his his entire generation of Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's still very involved back in New Jersey in that kind of ministry. It's hard. I mean, because his family's disowned him. Now, I don't, I haven't, I haven't talked to him for quite a long time, so I don't know if that's changed. But his, you know, he spent a lot of time talking to his family. His family just disowned him. They want anything to do with him because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jim, is there, can you point to one or two major reasons why those who are aware of those 
number of prophecies reject Christ as a Messiah? You know, really, there are varied reasons, Fred, but uh, the, the bottom line seems to be still it is hard to accept that Messiah would, would, would be crucified as our Messiah. That's, that is considered to be a defeat. And yet it's clearly in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Psalm 22 describes the, resur- uh, describes the crucifixion in graphic detail long before it is even used as a method of execution by any government. So I think that's still the bottom. I mean, you get you distill all of it down. That is still the bottom line. The, 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 the messianic expectation is of a king who will rule and reign and, and deliver, deliver them. Um, that had been the case through so much of their history. But uh, today, and this is another issue that divides the Jewish people today, is how do they look at the state of Israel? Because the majority of people in Israel today, uh, in like Tel Aviv, Haifa, some of the larger cities, are secular. They don't worship anything. I mean, in their security and their, their, uh, and their, their financial as well as military uh, stability in their life is due to the state. I mean, this is their homeland. This is the first time in, in almost 2,000 years where there's a place on planet Earth where they can feel safe. They're not oppressed. They're not put in ghettos. They're not, you know, Holocaust-type horrible things that happened throughout the 20, 20 centuries or so that they were out of their land. And so it's a, it's a false security for them. And, of course, that's what this is going to This is going to shake them to where it tells us in Romans eleven twenty six, there's coming a day when all the Jews will be saved. Zechariah's words, they'll look upon him whom they've pierced and believe. But that's still future. Okay, Joel. Where in the four great world kingdoms, where does the where does this fall in the four? Uh, this this last seven year period, this last seven year period is the the end of that final phase of the fourth kingdom. I'm trying. When you say to, last seven years. Mm-hmm. Is it one section of these four sections? Or? No, this is all from here. From here to here is seven years. Okay. Okay. So that will all occur in the second phase of the fourth. That's right. Phase. Yeah, that that second phase of the fourth kingdom is, you know, is the end. And where are we today? I don't know. <laughs> not, here, not here. I, yeah, Jim Dry, I know one thing. We're not here yet. <laughs> We're over here somewhere. So, uh, but I, I, I don't know. You know, I, there are certain indicators that would, you know, as a guy, I, I was mentored back in Pennsylvania a long time ago. He used to say, the only thing I know is we're one day closer to Christ's return. <laughs> so but, uh, it's probably a very safe way to put it. But as the, I'm sorry. Oh yes, it, it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, and, and Greece, and then Rome was the first phase of that fourth one. The second phase of the fourth one is what is all going to be wrapped around the Antichrist. Okay. So we don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. So we're in four. Uh, we're on the. I, I'm not sure. I want to say we're we're in the. We're we're looking toward that final phase of the fourth. I'm not going to be. Well, in we're in the first half, is what you're saying. First half of four, because it's. Yeah, we're well. We're yeah, in the sense that we're. The the, the this is it's all right. But I, I just knew the deeper we got into this, that's why I just. But if you don't have this little framework that this little simple thing presents, I can't refer you to anything as we start studying Second Thessalonians two. I have to refer you to something, and I. I mean, I thought and prayed about this for the last two weeks, and finally this morning I decided I'm going to run a copy of this all and just whatever happens, happens, Lord. So, <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, no, but it's the 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 book of Daniel talks about those that two phases, but it's 
it's the imagery that indicates that we're still waiting for that to be manifest. We're still waiting for that to come together. And it is all going to revolve around this rising individual that uh, the scriptures call the Antichrist or the Beast or any of the other names that he has. All right. I'll take a sip of That's right. So That's right. Could That's right. It, the imminency, imminency means it could happen at any time, is is very clearly taught in the scriptures. We we looked at that a little bit in First Thessalonians four. We looked a little bit at that. That that's that rapture teaching um, uh, paragraph, and it is imminent. That's the next event in in God's program, and there's nothing else that has to happen. So uh, that's why. Um, it seems as if that event will be the first domino that's going to kick off a whole bunch of other things that then will follow. But, uh, yeah. All right. I have a question. I know when, when we're studying First and Second Thessalonians and other things, too, and, and Paul's missionary journey is there, and so the, the house churches, the Jews and Gentiles? They were. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, a, in, yes, almost every area that... Um, community, town, city, in which he planted a church, it was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Uh, and that was the early church. That was very typical in the early church. Right. And because of that, um, the, 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 let me rephrase it, the revolutionary nature of that, the radical nature of that was such that it was astonishing to people. Mm-hmm. That Jew and Gentile, and really, and not only Jew and Gentile, this is a part of it too, um, Roman officers and their slaves, um, aristocratic landowners and their slaves, they're all worshiping together in these, in these house churches. And Paul alludes to some of that in his letters, Corinthians, for example. It's just, it, there was, it, was a, it was a radical thing for people to see because there was no other institution in the Greco-Roman world of the first century that was like that. And that, that was part of the... Um, the outworkings of the gospel that caused a lot of people to come to faith because they saw something that would it was no explanation for that except a supernatural explanation and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, today in in our in our uh, uh, world of the 21st century that same that same kind of dynamic can be at work it what explains us what explains the is, is the change of life, the transformation that Christ brings. And that, that is a powerful, powerful message. I just read, well, um, well, I won't get into that. Okay. Chapter 2. I want to start again. We started this last week, but I want to start it again. And I want you to understand the language that he's using here. Verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now, those two phrases, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him, refer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which we have already studied. So it's... The coming, the Greek word there is parousia, but that's the coming, the appearing of Jesus and are being gathered to him. If you go back to 1 Thess 4, 13 through 18, that's the language is that the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven. He's in the cloud with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the last trumpet. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up to be with him forever. Okay, being gathered together. So, okay, you now know that he is going to address end-time stuff. Because he had taught them that, he had written to them about that in the first letter. So, oh, okay, Paul, now we know what you're talking about. We ask you, brothers, now here, this is, this is really, pay attention to this. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or aligned either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, 
we do not know who this is. We do not know how many there are. We do not know what the exact context is. But he tells us by spirit, by spoken word, or by a letter seeming to come from us. So we infer from that that somebody was teaching it, and then they sent him a letter and signed at the bottom of the letter who? Paul. And Paul said, and then Paul says, and the substance of their teaching is that the day of the Lord has come, that this has begun. Now, why would they assume that? Why would somebody be teaching that? Because one of the aspects of this last seven-year period is intense persecution, horrific suffering by those who follow Christ, because the Antichrist is going to take out after them. And so whoever this was and whatever they were saying, they were saying, look, you Thessalonians, you're being, and they were, I told you that before, they were being severely persecuted. Roman governor was really coming down hard on them and so on. And so this person or whoever it was is saying, see, told you the day of the Lord started. So they're connecting these dots, which they have no right to connect, that just because you are being persecuted and suffering intensely, the day of the Lord's begun. That doesn't necessarily follow. And so Paul just says, no. And so what he does, he's going to both remind them and he's going to give them a little bit of additional teaching about this. So what he's going to do, and I'm going to give you the big picture, and we're going to go and take it apart. He's saying, now listen, there are three distinguishable markers that indicate this day of the Lord. And because none of those three markers are present, what's the conclusion? The day of the Lord has not begun. And I told you, I think I said this last week, one of, the, one of the results of whoever it was was teaching them, you had a group of people in Thessalonica who sold everything they had, quit their jobs, and were literally up with their families in the mountains outside of Thessalonica waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul, I mean, he, when he hears that, he then becomes more incensed because they were depending on the church to get food and to take care of them. The benevolence fund of Thessalonica was really busy during those months. Uh, does that make sense? I'm a little bit of a joke, but um, none of you got it. But anyway, so, and so Paul then comes back and says, listen, you have no obligation to those people. If they do not get back to work, they don't eat. Which, I mean, sounds harsh, but it's in the context. And it shows you that doctrinal teaching can affect behavior. And false doctrinal teaching can affect bad behavior. And so it's all of these clusters of things, these tentacles of connections that Paul is addressing in this second chapter. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to correct their thinking. And in correcting their thinking, he helps us to understand some things. All right, now you with me? Can I go forward? Well, uh, those who didn't believe that, who weren't in the hills... And they had heard Paul, and they understood what, right. perhaps more clearly, why wouldn't they, if this were the church today, say, this, this isn't happening, brothers and sisters? Well, the only thing, and I, I agree with you, the only thing we can assume is that they were doing that, Fred, but they weren't listening. Those who are up in the hills and so on, and whatever other effects this was having, they weren't listening. And so therefore, Paul, with his authority as an apostle, he, he lays out some very clear markers for them, which is really helpful. And then he says some pretty harsh things at the end of the chapter about this kind of behavior based on this false teaching. Got to correct this. Nip this in its bud. And so he's going to become very, very dogmatic because he sees the effect of this. All right. Where am I? Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Okay, now what do we, that, that, that's a little bit of a command, but it's very clear. This is deceptive teaching. This is deceit. This is false. So he's saying, don't be deceived by such teaching. What teaching? That the day of the Lord has already begun, and that we should just now go up in the hills and wait for the Lord to return. Don't be deceived. That's wrong. It's false. And this causes him then 
to, to lay out for us three markers of what will kick off the day of the Lord. What should we look for? For that day will not come first unless the rebellion comes first. Now I'm going to keep reading, then we'll go back and take all of this apart. And the man of lawlessness, some of your translations might have the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Men, that is language right out of Daniel 2, 7, 9, and Matthew 24. That is exactly the language used in these two passages. So when Paul taught that to them, he would have taught them from Daniel and referred them to Jesus' words. That's the language he's using here. Oh, that's right. I remember you taught us that, Paul. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 gives a name to this person, the Antichrist. And by the way, on Antichrist, the, the, the prefix anti or anti as they would pronounce it, it does mean against, but more specifically, it means in place of. So this individual is a false Christ. And as you're going to see in verses 8 through 12, where his character traits are unpacked again for us, he is going to be incredibly convincing for many people, but we're not there yet. Okay. So that's the second marker. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So what he just summarized in the previous couple of verses, he already taught that to them. So it's like a review. It's like, oh, my students, how did you forget what I taught you? You know, I mean, I've been there many times, but think of your children. How many times did you have to tell your children some truth for them to really internalize it? If you were a typical parent, the first time didn't do it. You had to keep doing it again and again and again. All right. For the mystery, uh, verse 6, excuse me, and you know, now this is, he taught them this. We know that because of the structure of this. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 6 and about verse 7. In verse 6, what is restraining him now? Verse 7, he who restrains him. So you move from a neuter statement, what is restraining, to now a masculine pronoun, he who restrains. We've got to figure out who that is, which we will in just a minute. So a third, a third marker. The spirit of this Antichrist is already active. The spirit of this lawlessness is already active. Do you want to say amen to that? You should, because it is very active. The spirit of lawlessness, you and I see it in our world. Every age in human history has seen it. The spirit of lawlessness is rampant. It's aggressive. But something is restraining it. And Paul taught them who it was. He just wasn't real specific with us. Because when he says, he, you know, he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So we've got to figure out who that is. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That is a summary of Revelation 19. Because that's exactly what will happen. Christ will return, march from Temple Mount up to the Valley of Jezreel, seize the Antichrist and throw him into the lake of fire. Boom, he's over. That's what that verse is telling us, that he is already destined to defeat. But before that happens, continuing, the coming of the lawless ones, by the way, I want you to know it's exactly the same language. The coming of the lawless one 
that parallels what we read in verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus, which gives you again the idea this is a false Christ. The coming of the evil one, notice what it says, is by the activity of Satan. That is exactly what Revelation 13 tells us. That the beast, the Antichrist, is empowered and energized by Satan with all power, false signs and wonders. That phrase, all power, signs and wonders, those words are used of Jesus in his public ministry, are used of the apostles in the early chapters of Acts. And if you go to Revelation 13, it tells you all the incredible things he's going to do. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So you're seeing power, signs and wonders, deception. In Matthew 24, Jesus, all of the discourse, four times Jesus uses the word deceit. This period of time, these last seven years, will be characterized by deceit. Who is the author of that deceit? The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, energized and empowered by Satan. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that what they believe, so they believe what is false. They believe that Antichrist is God. They're believing that. In order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in righteousness. What Paul has done in these verses, and it's only about eight or nine verses. He's just summarized. He's just summarized this. He summarized what's going to happen. And there are three markers. The apostasy, or the great turning against God. The revealing of the Antichrist, the man of sin, who is revealed when the restrainer is taken out of the way. So we have to, those are the three markers. I want to talk about each one of them, but there are several questions. Fred, you were first. Yeah, um, <clears throat> if you take the population of the earth, you know, going back maybe 3,000, 4,000 years ago, and you take the population of the earth today, and then I think, at least in my part, I think that, and I want you to kind of clear this up if you can, if you can, uh, that things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. But is that necessarily true? I mean, is that a straight scripture quote of fact, what will happen? Because things have been horrible in early history of the earth as well. Mm -hmm. So is it just going to get worse and worse and worse? Or could things just be sort of status quo and then boom, this happens? The rapture happens and then we start to settle here. Um, I'm not sure exactly I understand what you're okay, let, let me take it apart. First of all, you're absolutely right. Throughout all of human history, I mean, there have just been disaster after disaster after disaster. I mean, anybody that, if you become a student of history, you know that. And there's, you go to almost any century in, in the 5,000 plus years of recorded history, it's hard to find a good century. I mean, really. I mean, just the wars and devastation, I mean, whether you're talking about the oppressive work of Rome, during which was a great empire, but they were they ruled by terror and force. It was awful what they did. And I mean, you know, I, I just finished because it's the hundredth anniversary, uh, 2014, with the hundredth anniversary of the start of World War One. A couple of new books are World War One. When, when World War One started, people thought this is the apocalypse. Who's the Antichrist? Is is Prince Fred, is King Frederick William of Germany? Is he the Antichrist? Because it was horrible. What was happening? There was never, it had never been a war that bad. They called it the Great War. They wanted it to be the war that ended all wars. The gas warfare, you know, the tank was introduced, planes were introduced, bombing raids. I mean, we'd never been such devastation. Huge loss of life. And then World War II occurred, which was far worse than World War I. And in the midst of that, you had, in addition, you had the Holocaust. You had Hitler intentionally killing 6 million Jews, plus 5 million more people he killed. 11 million people. And then you had Stalin, in his consolidation of power, killed 40 million people. And then Mao Zedong, in his consolidation of power in China, killed 60 million people. The 20th century was an absolutely horrific century. So you kind of think things, it's just, 
it's bad. What is different, what is different here is the intensity of this because of this individual empowered personally by Satan. Satan is going to throw everything he has at God. It's the last shot. So I do not subscribe to the idea that things just keep keep getting worse and worse and worse, and when they're finally really bad, then this guy shows up. No, it's just things are bad. And then he shows up. I mean, it's not that they're getting worse. I mean, they're bad. But they're not going to get good, or they're not going to get, they're just bad. Because this is a nation, this is a world in rebellion against God, and just bad. Because there have always been earthquakes, there's always been starvation, there's always been famines, there's always been pestilence. When you get to this last seven-year period, and in the book of Revelation it's organized around the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, it's unprecedented. And I think it's because of who the restrainer is. Because what's keeping things from getting worse and worse and worse? Because we sh- really, very reasonably and very logically, the human race should have self-destructed about 3,000 years ago. Why haven't we? Because of the restrainer. Joel, is, is that a hand or are you just... Yeah, I was just, and maybe you'll get into this or maybe you don't want to get into this, but the, the, uh, the Antichrist isn't necessarily Satan. No, he is energized by Satan. Okay. And then the, the restrainer isn't necessarily Christ. But no, he's not Christ. He's Christ. definitely not Christ. Okay, then okay. Andrew. Verse 11, uh, it says, so, well, my, my version, uh, so, God will, so God will send great deception upon them, and they will believe all these lies. Is that similar to God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yes, yes. So is yes. in that right there is after the rapture during yes. the seven years. Yes. So it's Yes. And I wasn't here last week. I want to clarify. Church rapture, you're talking about current church, us, so your pre trip. I am. Okay. So when you say uh, the Antichrist will throw everything he has at God and the believers, who <laughs> And if you don't want to answer this, don't, because <laughs> it's going to open a whole other can of worms. But who bec- who can become believers? Once Everybody. The tribulation starts? Every everyone every human being on earth is a candidate for. Uh, but who will he send deception to? That's my that's my final. I mean that's. Well, I I think it's those those who in the known only to the Lord, I suppose, like Pharaoh. Where when you look at that, Pharaoh hardness heart, Pharaoh hardness heart, Pharaoh hardness heart, and then said God hardness heart. God, he had crossed that line, so to speak. That's a theological statement. And Paul talks about that to some extent in the, in the book of Romans as well. I mean, I, God is the only one who knows things like that. But there are those who um, follow the Antichrist and buy into everything that he is doing, but there are going to be some, you know, one uh, writer uh, talked about the great, one of the greatest revivals in the history of the human race will be the revival during the tribulation period, led by the 144,000, uh, which is in Revelation 7, but I mean, it's going to be huge numbers of people are going to come to faith. So there's no time frame. Like no. We've got the first year. No, 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 I don't think, okay. I don't think we can be that. The Bible doesn't allow us to be that precise about those seven years. Okay. All right, uh, Andrew. Andrew was. I just had a quick question. You've never had this many questions in this group. <laughs> this it's be, all right. It's okay. <laughs> this might be a pointless detail to ask, but you know, you, you see in media and stuff like that depictions of the Antichrist being, you know, seed planted, planted by Satan or born of somebody or something yeah. like that. We've talked before about that Satan doesn't create; he just twists. As far as we know, Satan does not create ex nihilo. Yeah. I mean, is, it, I mean, is there any way? Now, is this a creation of Satan or is it the twist of Satan? Let's use another word. Revelation 12 and 13 talk about this. And it speaks, see it did, speaks of him as Satan as the red dragon. And verse 9 identifies who it is. It's the serpent of old. It's the devil. It's Satan. So we know unquestionably who it is. And I think the language that we should probably use is he incarnates this beast, this Antichrist. So another way of putting it is 
he is, that is, the beast is the incarnation of Satan. I believe you can argue that, I, I don't think it takes much imagination to see that. He's really setting up a false trinity. Remember, antichrist means, in Greek, anti means a false Christ in place of Christ. He will present himself in that way. And it tells us, again, this is, this is very similar to a lot of the other parts of Scripture that talk about this. With power, false signs, and wonders. He and that another individual is identified in chapter 13 of Revelation, the false prophet, he's called. But he is going to aid in the worship of this, this person. And he's going to do signs. He's going to do what they are the words used of what Jesus did. So he's going to do supernatural things. But it's energized by evil, not by righteousness. So, I mean, that's what I said, I think it was in response to Fred's comment. This is, Satan is going to throw everything he can at God in this last period. Because this is the last shot. Because he, Satan reads the Bible. He knows what his destiny is. Another way of saying it, when the cross, uh, when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, immediately Satan knew he was done. He was defeated. The price for sin had been paid. So you say, I mean, I don't know, you and I might think, you know, if, if I was defeated by God, I would probably say, well, I'm going to give up. I mean, I'm not going to win. So, okay, I give in. But that's not what he does. And you see the thorough, thoroughgoing nature of his evil. His goal now, I believe this with all my heart, his goal now is to take as many image bearers of God to, with him to hell. That's his goal. He cannot defeat God, but he can hurt God in the sense that taking as many image bearers. And so that gives us the other side of the question, why then does God delay for the same reasons? He is increasing the population of heaven. That's his grace. All right. Okay. Why are some of those... Bible teachers get stuck saying oh, it's going to happen. At the end. We're going to go through all this. To, you know, I, I, I was at a church, you know, in town here where he took a different one. Pastor took a role from this and said we're going to go through all of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I've heard other people do that. Well, there are some that would probably be a minority position, but there mm-hmm. are some who it's called a post-trib position. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing popularity is a mid-trib position or a variation mm-hmm. of it. The the uh, wrath pre-wrath rapture position but anyway um and you know in one sense um i mean i have strong convictions on this but a person who's a post-trip person i'm going to be in heaven with them mm-hmm. they're believers yes. mid-trip position they're yeah. wrong but i'm going to be in heaven with them <laughs> yeah. but you know i'm, I'm kidding but you, you 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 say okay if that's your just as long as you can defend it and that's your mm-hmm. conviction but I find I can understand, and there are reasons why people adopt that, a, a mid-trib or pre-wrath position. It's hard for me to see the post-trib wrath position. There are a couple reasons for that, and I won't get into any much, but the most important reason, I think, is, is and we read about that in First Thessalonians, that God has not destined his children for wrath. And the word wrath is all over this seven-year period. That word is used continuously. And so, um, it, it, and there are other, a lot of other reasons, but at least it starts to give you the appeal that, you know, God is going to protect us from that, his church, you know, which is the body of his son. But, you know, you have, people disagree on that, and that's, that's okay. But I do think there are some things that are very important that raise questions about, because the, pre-trip, the post-trip position means Jesus comes back for his church and everybody just comes back. There is no, you know, so you've got a lot of other events that the Bible talks about that have to be fit in somewhere. All right, now we're getting in the weeds again, but that was a good question. Now, we're almost out of time, but I want to take you to this sheet here, okay? What I've done in this sheet is I've taken each one of these markers. And we're not going to get through this today because we're almost out of time. But I've taken each one of these markers. And remember what, I, what we're doing here. Paul says, don't be deceived by this teaching that the day of the Lord has come. Because three things must occur. And so we can maybe get the first one. In, from verse 3, 
where he starts, and you know, I, I was reading, I'm reading from the ESV, but it says, when, unless the rebellion comes first, some translations have the apostasy comes first. So, and literally the word in Greek is apostasize. That's literally the word. So the rebellion, or literally the apostasy. This is a revolt, a departure, an abandoning of a position once held. Occurring within the professing church, this future apostasy is described. I'll give you a whole bunch of verses. It is a decisive turning from the truth declared in God's word. It is a deliberate turning from the truth of God to embrace the Antichrist, who set himself up to be worshipped, which is the marker number two. So what you have is you have people who are professing, I'm not saying possessing, but who are professing to be Christians, turn to the Antichrist. It's a final, decisive, intentional, willful rebellion against God. Now, the rebellion against God has been going on since Genesis 3. So what's new about this? It is a massive turning of the human race to this false Christ. So in other words... It's a massive turning of the human race to embrace this individual and everything he represents, saying he is the Christ. This Jesus of 2,000 years, he's not the Christ. This is the Christ. There's nothing more apostate. There's nothing more rebellious than that. He isn't. Everything we've heard about him, everything these Christians have been teaching about him isn't true. He's the Christ. So it is a massive, thoroughgoing rejection of Jesus by, I, I, there's no way you can put numbers to this. The Bible doesn't give numbers. But it's massive. It is the final, um, the way to say that, the final stage of the rebellion of the human race against God. He isn't the Christ. He is. Everything they've been saying about him isn't true. He's the one. And so, I mean, all these things go together. Number one, two, three, bang, bang, they all go together. It's not like this occurs, and then, then five years later this occurs, and then two more years this, no, this all occurs immediately within the same time frame. But Paul is saying these are the markers. So tomorrow what we want to do is, I, I mean, um, uh, next Wednesday what we want to do is do two and three. Okay, do those together. Because remember, these all link together. And and, and in Paul, I mean, obviously, that's not what was happening in Thessalonica in, in the first century, which is what he wants to teach them. All right, a lot of questions. So are you leaving deeper in the weeds or are you saying, you know, I under, I'm almost thinking maybe I'm understanding a little bit of this. So. Nobody answers, so I don't know. <clears throat> all right, let me pray, all right? Lord, uh, this is hard teaching. It's, it's difficult material, but it's in the Bible. It's part of what um, you have revealed, and it was a corrective to something false that was being taught in Thessalonica. And um, in our world today, we don't have a single individual claiming to be the new Christ, but that spirit of wickedness is everywhere. And we certainly can understand how things can snowball out of control, where there's a thoroughgoing, total, worldwide rejection of everything that the Christian faith has taught. And there is an embracing of this new individual, this false Christ, who's going to do a lot of the miracles, exhibit tremendous power, because he's energized by the evil one. This is the final stage of human history. So, Lord, uh, the Bible has chosen, you have chosen through your word, to tell us and explain some things to us. It's important for us to understand it, because this is part of your revelation to us. It's hard, and I'm sure that for some, there are still a lot of questions. But it's a part of your word, and we, we do need to address it. And I trust what we've done this morning has been helpful, if nothing more than just raising a, another level of awareness of some important things that are in your word. So I trust these men to you. Thank you for their willingness to come, their willingness to be a part of a study like this. 
and I trust that you'll continue to bless as we pursue these last sections of the book of Second Thessalonians together. Help them in their work, help them in their relationships with their loved ones, their spouse, their children, grandchildren even, to represent you well, Lord. They are people, they represent you to people that may need to hear the gospel, may need to see the transformed life, and to hear about the saving work of Christ. Help them to be ready to tell that story and share that news. In your name we pray. Amen. See you next week.